0: Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Jay Coburn, and I'm one of the producers on this show. We're a show about the politics of ideas, and we've just launched on New Books Network. If you've been listening all week, you'll already know that our theme of the week is Ideas in Strange Places. We're running shows from our catalogue that fit a different theme each week until we launch our new season on September 18th. Today, prison intellectualism. What kind of radical thought can come from that kind of oppression? That's what we're asking, and it turns out there's a fair amount, despite the way prisoners are generally treated. Host Gordon Cattick talks to someone who wrote newspaper columns from inside a U.S. prison, and also to the editor of an academic journal written entirely by prisoners. So, from right near when we started darts and letters, here's episode five: Prison Notebooks. <laughs>
1: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Darts and Letters is a show about intellectuals and the work that they do. But it's not just for the Ivy crowd, it's for everybody. Even people who hack darts and people who wouldn't be cut dead with a New Yorker tote bag. so much of the best radical intellectual work has been written in prisons. Top of mind is Thoreau's Civil Disobedience, Gramsci's Prison Notebooks and MLK's Letter from Birmingham Jail. But the list of famous prison books is actually really long and there are a few surprises there. Don Quixote, Pilgrim's Progress, The Prince, even Wittgenstein's Tractatus. If you're wondering why there's so much exciting intellectual work written in prisons, Maybe the answer is deceptively simple. Maybe it's just this. The state loves to imprison dissident artists and intellectuals. I've already mentioned a few, but I could make a whole show about the famous prisoner intellectuals. There's Eugene Debs, Bertrand Russell, Emma Goldman, Oscar Wilde. It's a who's who of radical thought. But it also seems to me that prisons themselves give you a certain insight. Now, I'm not going to romanticize them. Being caged and abused is not exactly generative, as the academics say. Prisons are clearly not the best place to come up with big ideas, especially since the prison administration keeps out certain books from the library. They censor your mail, they make phone calls difficult and expensive, and generally what they do is they try to restrict your access to the outside world. They restrict your access to the world of ideas. So whatever sort of intellectualism happens in there, it happens despite the prison, not because of it. But I'll say it again, I still think there is a certain insight to be gained there. Obviously, I don't know it personally, but to me it seems to be this, there is just nothing just about the criminal justice system. Most people who really see it come to quickly realize that it exists to really just do this, punish poor people, punish people of color, and punish the mentally ill. I don't think there is any process, reform, or bureaucratic mechanism to redeem this awful place. In my mind, it should just be abolished. But while it still does exist, we can't forget the people inside of it. And we can't exclude them from this intellectual conversation. I mean, we can't exclude them from a show like this. Because prisoners are intellectuals, and it's not just the famous ones that I've mentioned. It's even the ones with a limited education. It's even the ones who struggle to read and write. They are intellectuals of a sort because they do have something to say. You just need to pay closer attention to realize it. So that's what we're doing today. Today on Darts and Letters, we're looking at prison intellectualism. I speak with Justin Pichet. Justin edits one of the most amazing academic journals you'll ever come across. It's called the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons. It's been around for over 30 years, and in each and every edition, you will see brilliant scholarly work. It just so happens that this work is written by prisoners. But first, Chandra Bazelko. She served six years, three months, and 11 days in a woman's prison in Connecticut. And while she was in there, she started a newspaper column. I talked to Chandra about her time inside, about what writing did for her, and what prison intellectualism really looks like. All that and more on Darts and Letters. Stay tuned. You're listening to Darts and Letters. If you like what you hear and you want to support us, why don't you subscribe? You can do that wherever you find your podcasts, or you can find us at dartsandletters.ca. Okay, back to the show. Chandra was charged with a slew of financial crimes. Of course, she had high-priced lawyers, and she was fighting the charges. She thought she stood a good chance. Then, all of a sudden, it was just Over.
2: I was told that that was going to be a day for a hearing on getting a new trial. So my attorney uh, had advised me and my family that this was really an inconsequential day that I could come by myself. (laughs) It would last a couple of minutes because we were just going to set down a date for another hearing on getting a new trial, and this was really nothing consequential or nothing to worry about. And the judge said, no, I'm sorry, that's too bad. We're going to go ahead with the sentencing. And at first I thought, okay, he's just going to impose a sentence of probation, so I'm still going to walk out of here. He won't actually send me to prison without letting me have a chance to talk to anybody or get ready My car was in the parking lot and he did. He sentenced me to, you know, a total effective sentence of nine years when you counted in the probation. So that trauma of the surprise made me extremely angry. So my first couple of days there, I was both angry but also convinced that I would leave any day, that this was totally – it really was unfair the way it was handled, Um, that – Any day now, someone was going to make the right argument to the judge and he would relent or I would get at least another chance, at least a couple of weeks out on the street to prepare everything and get ready and at least be ready for my real entry into the prison. But as we know now, (laughs) several years later, that did not happen. And that's something, you know, that was a really important lesson that these kinds of things, you can get blindsided. You can have an attorney who either doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't care and your whole life can be upended. I've heard of pets dying because people get picked up by police and they're held for more than they ever thought they would be and no one was there to feed the cat or the dog.
1: Wow. So when you get in, I noticed in your writing people called you Princeton. First of all, how do they even know?
2: How they know is from me. In retrospect, I wish I hadn't said it. But part of the assessment is also your educational background because they need to know what programming Mm
3: -hmm. they have
2: to schedule you for. If you don't have a high school diploma or an equivalency degree, the system is obligated to arrange that for you. So as soon as they can get you into some type of high school programming, they will. So they have to ask, do you have a degree? Do you have a high school degree? Do you have a college degree? Because that would actually make me ineligible for any of the college offerings that they had for people who were there sentenced for a certain amount of time. They said, do you have a college degree? From where? And they usually ask that because they want to verify it. And in retrospect, I would not have said Princeton because that I'm sure was the only time and maybe the only time in history that they will hear that answer in that room when they're doing an educational assessment. But I revealed it, and I'm sure that went around the gossip trail of all the staff within seconds. And I'm sure actually they thought that I was lying because there are a lot of people who go in and build fantastical backstories to their lives, either to cover up something or because they're mentally ill or whatever their reason is. And I think that they actually did verify it because they wanted to see if I was fantasizing and they verified it and it was true. So this was something that was highly unusual there for the prison. I mean, 68% of the women who enter there don't have a, a high school credential at all. And then two commissioners ago, a man named Scott Semple. He was the commissioner of correction at the time. He was the one who I thought was the bravest in saying that he also thought that in the Connecticut correctional population, in addition to the 68 percent who don't have a high school credential, that there's probably another 15 percent who do have the credential and still can't read, that they were somehow passed over, that teachers didn't care enough to stop them. They just were passed through for, you know, what do they call it, social advancement or reasons or what what have you. Um, so there's close to about 80 percent who really uh, struggle with anything kind of academic. So and for me to come in and say, hi, yeah, I went to Princeton. That, one, that That was probably something that in retrospect, I would advise anyone not to do.
1: What did it mean to be singled out in that way?
2: I didn't really understand it at first, because like I said, I was so focused on getting out of there and get rectifying what had happened to me that it really wasn't I hate to say it because it sounds like I, I didn't value people as people. And maybe it came across that way, I, I'll have to be honest, is that I didn't really care about the staff there. That's not to say that I was rude to them or dismissive of them, but I was so focused on getting to the phone for legal calls or writing a letter to somebody or working on this, my case that whatever they thought of me was such a low priority in, in terms of what I cared about. And I think that that maybe offended them. I think they thought wanted me to be a little bit more scared or maybe a little bit more embarrassed than I came across. And it really wasn't about them. It was my hyper-focus and myopia on my own situation and case. But that's what I think it was, is that she thinks she's better than us because she's not cowering in front of us.
1: What does that mean to be a target? Did you face retribution? How did it affect you?
2: Oh, yeah. I was written bogus disciplinary tickets. I was put into solitary confinement a number of times. I spent, I think, 75 days aggregate going in and out. There was one particular guard who was just very fixated on making my life miserable. He spread a rumor that we knew each other from the street. And there's a concept, it's actually a ruling ethic in prisons. It's called undue familiarity. Guards can't know the inmates nor the inmates know the guards in a personal way. And the reason why is the more you can dehumanize either side, the easier it is to do horrible things to them and not care. And so if you know the person as a person, it makes it easier for certain guards to be nice in certain ways or even to favor you in ways that you don't deserve. So if you know if there's a, a fight between someone who's convicted of a sex offense with someone who's convicted of shoplifting, let's be honest, they're probably going to let the person who's convicted of shoplifting get a, l- a few more punches in on the person who's convicted of the sex offense than they probably should. And that's knowledge that they're not supposed to have of why you're there, what the charges are, things like that. They're just supposed to know where you're supposed to be at any given time and whether you're there or not and what your inmate number is. So this was, I'm sure when the Princeton information went out, they all started looking up my case and looking into my background and things like that. I didn't get the benefit of the undue familiarity rule. And to spread a rumor that I somehow knew this officer from the streets would have caused me to be, put in solitary confinement and they until they checked out what degree of familiarity there was. There was none. I didn't get put in solitary for that, but it did put me under what they call investigation, which means that they're watching me more closely and Mm -hmm. and things like that. But it was a, a number of things. Toying with my legal mail so that I didn't get things on time. Toying with my regular mail. Things like that. When I was in solitary confinement, they basically didn't feed me. They would dump my food out into my cell through a little slot door. So there was a lot. And it was, I would say, pretty constant, right? So it was a a, a really kind of a constant drip every day of some type of problem or some type of abusive language directed towards me.
1: So you start to write about your experiences. I think it started as letters to the editor, right? With a local newspaper, was it?
2: Yes, that's how the public one started. But how I started just writing in generally was, (laughs) I said, I need to write this down. I'll have to document this later because... If I have to file a complaint or if I needed, you know, proof of why I shouldn't be here for the court or something. So it really was a memorialization project at first, writing down details. And then something funny would happen. And I would say to myself, oh, I want, I want to remember this. So I would write that down. Or I would write something down that a woman said that was poignant or something I learned about myself or others in the process, and I would write those down. And then I started to see other things, you know, like that were happening. And so the first time that that all these notes and these quote unquote diaries become public is that there was a, um, all of the showers and the sinks in the place were leaking. It was almost uncanny the way that (laughs) every (laughs) water spout in the facility was not working properly and was leaking. And the problem with that, aside from the water loss, is that it's really loud. So when you're trying to sleep at night, The sink is running or there's a shower dripping. It's really loud and loud in a way that prevents you from sleeping and resting. So people were really not able to get good sleep. You you really can't in prison anyways. But with the water going the way that it did, it was preventing it even more.
1: You just hear a constant drip, drip, drip in your cell when you're trying to sleep?
2: Actually, it wasn't a drip. It was a constant running. So it's the water kind of tapping against a metal drain. So it's kind of this like low hum. Oh, wow like imagine if you just had water running constantly like there wasn't a drip 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 it was they were running almost as if they hadn't been shut off so um it was really actually devastating to a lot of people and i was i actually marveled at how that many faucets and and showerheads could be that poorly maintained in retrospect i think that there was something it was almost purposeful right like why wouldn't someone come in and fix these things so I discussed it with another inmate who had been there for a a while and she was from the area where your correctional is. It's on the shoreline. It's in a town called Niantic, Connecticut, which is near East Lyme. And she said, you know, there's a town prison relationship. There's a contract, an agreement that it never in the the history of the town should the prison get more water than the townspeople. If there's ever a point at which the, the prison is getting more water, then that has to be stopped. And she knew this because there were rules implemented during the summers when the townspeople needed more water to water their lawn and flowers and gardens and stuff like that. There was, I guess, a couple of times when the reservoir ran dry. So she said, this would really make people upset if they knew how much water is being wasted, even if we're not getting the lion's share of the water, which no one wants us to have, um, it's still a waste. So we wrote a letter to the editor together. We sent it to the day which is the local paper in that area. It's out of New London, Connecticut. And the day ran it. And how we knew, we actually didn't know that it had been published because there's not that type of like email back and forth. We can't call the newspaper. They couldn't call us. But we knew that it had been published when late on a Wednesday night before Thanksgiving in 2011, we all got knocks on our doors. And this was after hours. So everyone had gone home for their holiday, a couple of days off, at least one day off and came in to fix the sinks and the shower heads. We had to be evacuated from our cells and as, you know, removed as maintenance men went in, fixed the sinks, you know, replaced washers, whatever they had to do, and they went from cell to cell and did it. And this is in the middle of the night, around 11 o'clock, and I thought this is you know, strange that they would be doing this now, and one of the maintenance men swore at me, and I said, they published it, didn't they? And I knew immediately <laughs> then that this had gotten out, and I guess... I don't know the whole story that was separate from me, but I think the first selectman of the town read it in the paper and said, this can't be happening. You know the deal. They can't get more water than we do and called the warden and the warden had to bring people in as they had already left for a holiday, pay them overtime and get it fixed because I'm sure that there was someone on the outside who was demanding some type of accountability on it. And that was a very good lesson that this was: if you can get the story out to the public with their (laughs) hatred of people who they perceive to have committed a crime, that you can actually get something done. So from then, I said, okay, then the stories need to start getting out, and that's when I really start gearing up and writing, using things notes I'd already written, uh, but putting them into more formal pieces and sending them out to really any Connecticut newspaper that would take them. One Connecticut newspaper called the New Haven Independent got a piece and said, we want more. We can tell these stories, and we can maybe help you out within your quest to kind of expose and educate people about what's happening inside.
1: I don't know exactly what the word is, but I'd be so uh, ambivalent, about that kind of lesson, because on the one hand, you've made an impact and fixed the pipes. But like you just said, you fixed it because of the town's hatred of prisoners. So how how did you kind of navigate the emotions of that? And like, what do you take from that?
2: Well, I I knew that the public's kind of disdain for a correctional population is actually something that is very powerful. So if you can pluck it and trigger it in a certain way and use it to your benefit, it's a way to protect yourself. So a big argument that I used to make in a lot of the things that I would write is that how much this costs the taxpayers to keep people inside and what is really being achieved and how much is being taken out of their paychecks to do this kind of, uh, you know, perpetuate this kind of craziness inside. Um. New Haven Independent offered me and said, please, you know, send us some more. They said, we're going to give you a column and we're going to call it Prison Diaries. The column only really lasted a couple of months because I sent out and they published a piece where I had noticed that a lot of the guards knew the women who were in for prostitution in ways that they shouldn't. There were comments about where they would do their sex work, where they would pick up Johns, things like that. And I thought this, this isn't in any kind of file. And so I put two and two together and I said, this is what's happening. This, the, they are customers of these women. Mm. There's no other way for them to know the things that they know and the comments that they would make. And the comments that they would make were actually very clearly designed to exert power, right? And to remind a woman they knew what she had done. They knew what she Did to make most of her money to put her down for it. And I thought this is really a terrible thing to have to engage in that work and then have to have that same person who you did that work with now be in charge of your daily food, safety, shelter, whether you're in a cell with someone who will beat you up or not, whether you are getting your mail, things like that has to be very scary and very um, disempowering. So I told this story and then I shortly thereafter I get a letter from the same editor who had said, please send us more. Said, I don't think I can do this anymore. You're not from New Haven originally. And I this we didn't really actually have a criminal justice component to this publication, which none of those things have to be true for the uh-huh. column to have um, persisted. But I got several comments from guards later that were a little bit cryptic, but not cryptic enough for me to understand that they had been in touch with the editor in some way and explained to him that they didn't like what he was doing and giving me a voice. So it was canceled. And that that was devastating for me. For one, because I had this, you know, this was how I was protecting my mind, is, is writing these pieces um, and devoting myself to, like, a craft that I didn't really know that much about but was trying to learn. And then also getting stories out and getting people to understand what was happening. And I would get letters from people on the street. Some were nasty, some were very supportive and some would say, I didn't know that this was happening in there and I'm really glad that you said this or exposed this. And so what I decided to do then was just keep writing as if I had the column, I just wouldn't be sending them out. So, And it was more self-protective than anything is that I would just kind of continue on in the empowered fashion that, that I had while I had the column and literally not be in touch with reality, You know, act as if I have this weekly deadline and... and requirement to produce a piece and mail it out, etc. So it was almost a form of delusion actually kept me going for the last two or three years I was there.
1: How literally do you mean that? Did you convince yourself that this stuff was getting published or was just kind of just a an exercise, you know what I mean? Like how It was
2: an, it was an exercise, but I knew it would be published, but I didn't actually know where or how because I remember the only contact I have with editors or even really with news sources, right? Like reading the actual things. I didn't even read my own columns the way that they were published. I just knew what I wrote and what I had sent out is that these will end up in the public sphere someday. I don't know how. I don't know how to do that, but they will. And I kept writing as if I was on a deadline, right? I kept myself to getting so many done per week, that kind of thing. Because um, I knew I probably would really have decompensated uh, mentally if I didn't do that.
1: You wrote a lot about, well, just you ran the gamut, but a lot of the diaries that I was looking at earlier today were about your experiences working in the kitchen um, yeah. and cooking. Can you tell me a little bit about that? What is like a prison kitchen like?
2: Well, it's a large industrial kitchen with nothing um, fancy, right? There's no nothing for the art of cooking, really which is funny because so many of the men and women who worked in correctional food service were chefs. They either had been a chef previously and they wanted more stable employment with better benefits, different hours, so, you know, something more regular. So they had extensive culinary expertise. These weren't just corrections officers who happened to be assigned to the kitchen. So I did learn a lot about cooking for, with them. And they did actually, when I, in the latter half of my kitchen experience, I saw them do a lot of really creative and artful things with prison food, which is hard, right? Like it's a lot of times we don't even have meat. We have texturized vegetable protein patties or crumble or something like that to take the place of meat. And they did wonderful things with it. So I actually saw there was some creativity and some artistry in the kitchen that I had not seen on the part of staff members before I went into the kitchen.
1: One of the things I read Was that in the kitchen you had a kind of turning point when you met Anthony Pellegrino, was it? Could you tell me a little bit about Anthony and what meeting them did for you?
2: Sure. And we call him Nino, and he goes by Kitchen Nino, (laughs) because that's how he would answer the phone, Kitchen Nino, um, like you would say, library, Chandra, that kind of thing. Nino is this bombastic, larger-than-life former sailor. He uh, spent 20 years in the Navy as a cook and then went into corrections because he thought he could help people. He actually had run a boot camp for teenage girls and women before he came in, and he didn't feel like that was working, but he knew that his the way he was disciplined and the way that he could interact with people might help some people. So he took this job at, at your correctional institution. When you first meet Nino, you say, what is this? He's a highly tanned man. He has a tanning booth in his house. That's how committed he is to maintaining his tan, and he has this kind of blonde curl in the middle of his forehead and he dresses like a typical sailor with his sleeves rolled up but he's also military man right so he likes things done a certain way and but he's also a very very effective leader right so he would make up certain sayings to remind women many of whom are still you know in a drug haze because <laughs> they just got in there and it takes a while to really kick heroin or you know certain types of addictions women who are not used to being directed by a well-meaning man to do certain things and he was able to get women to do what they needed to do to get the meals out and we used to have to feed almost like a thousand people in 45 minutes that's what a prison meal is like because people file through so quickly and then we also have to do delivery meals to women who can't come to the dining hall, which is people in segregation, people in medical unit, that kind of thing. So it's a, a crazy rush, and it, so it really has to be a very effective person to get women, many of whom have never had a job, many of whom are suffering from a variety of illnesses, to get them to work together and get this thing done. Because if it's not done, you know, one of the uh, prison's main responsibilities is to feed people. That's something that they can't shirk. They don't have to be nice. They don't have to rehabilitate you. but They do have to feed you. And if they're not, that really is going to be a problem for some, either a court or wherever someone could file a complaint. And they have to, it has to be done at certain times so that they can check it off. And certain, there's a new law or was new at the time that was there that you had to have two hot meals a day. It couldn't all be just cold, you know, a cereal bag thrown at someone. So this was, there were a lot of requirements put on these people and Nino was able to do it. And he had these, you know, rhyming sayings like, if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. So if he saw anyone leaning back on a chair or a wall or something, not doing anything, he would immediately conscript them into cleaning something. Even if it was just some tiny corner, he would have them cleaning it because he's military and he likes his, you know, things the way he, he expected them in the military. So I was taken with him because I'd noticed how effective a leader he was when you would not expect it, both just looking at him and how he appeared, and then also the kind of he would bark, right? Like he would shout orders and do this. But he also got the women to listen to him. And I listened to him because he he I know recognized he's very good at this. This is this is Nino's job and he knows how to corral and marshal women were really hard to organize and get something done with them. And so because I did listen to him so well and perform so well under him, he becomes very fond of me in the sense of I become like a right-hand man, right? So like he he can rely on me to check on things and be accurate about it and that I'll, I'll remember to do it the next time and stuff like that. So I become Nino's right-hand man. And while I was in cars, uh, working in the kitchen, he, <laughs> one day they come and they take me to solitary confinement because my roommate had hit me in the face, but it wasn't really a hit. It was more of what they call in there a mush, which is when you put your hand on someone's face and twist it. And they had taken me, not her, to solitary confinement for that. And Nino found out. He actually called in from his house. <laughs> Someone had told him on a day off, Bazelco is, is out. You're going to have to come back and work without her. And he called in and said, I don't know what's going on, but if what you're doing to her is wrong, then you're going to hear from me. And they let me out. I, I, Can't explain it to people who have never served time, but that's like um, saving someone's life or giving them a a kidney or something like that. That to sacrifice and to call in on your you know a day off and basically do a work task when you're not being paid to do it and care that one of the inmates was being treated unfairly. That was very unusual, and I, I he he saved my life in many on many occasions. I think because he would tell a lot of the guards back off leave her alone i need her she's helping me she's reliable things like that so um in many ways nino i think kept me out of solitary he kept me out of being abused by staff he kept me out of being um ridiculed by staff he protected me in ways that i don't even i can't even imagine and i don't know that i'll ever be able to repay either
1: wow that's amazing so you've already told me that you were unique because of the lack of education that a lot of um, the inmates have and and the kind of illiteracy rates. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What kind of support, what kind of education are inmates actually afforded?
2: Well, if they come in and they don't have the credential, remember everything relies on whether they have the credential or not. If they don't have the high school credential, they are immediately enrolled in what we just call prison school right. So it's like a a high school hallway with classrooms that are decorated, I would say, more in an elementary school style with, like, you know, um, alphabets painted on the the walls, that kind of thing, you know, really basic stuff. But they're high school classrooms, and they go and they attend, and they usually stay with one teacher for all subjects, and they attend from around 8 in the morning until 2.30 in the afternoon with the hopes of learning enough that they can take the GED and get a high school equivalency degree. This is actually hard for a lot of teachers because so many of the women, especially when they're first in, um, are undergoing a lot of trauma, right? If they didn't expect that they would be taken into custody, they're worried about kids, pets, like I said – a lot of them have substance abuse problems, so they're pr- still probably not entirely clean in the sense that all those chemicals have not cleared their system yet. And then also, let's be honest, a lot of them had not been in school for maybe decades. So they're not used to it, and I think a lot of them had really negative traumatic experiences when it came to education. Either they had were part of the school-to-prison pipeline, they got in trouble for something and were expelled or removed or somehow separated from the school system or they might have had learning disabilities that were not addressed properly so that this was it was really a struggle for them to learn. And I didn't think that those issues were really addressed. It was more like we're throwing you into this class and you're going to learn and then you're going to take a test and you're going to pass it. But if you don't, you're just going to come back and learn again and we're just going to keep doing this until you pass. And the passing um, score for a GED is actually pretty low. So people did pass and get the GED, and then were technically eligible if they were still incarcerated to take college classes. But I just feel like the challenges that were thrown at the teachers and and the students in a prison school were probably too much to surmount unless you have social workers and a whole phalanx of people who are going to deal with all of these other problems that are associated with their lack of learning, right?
1: Right. And then when you don't address those challenges and you leave you get your GED maybe you've got a just a passing score what is the likelihood that people would continue on try the college classes spend time in the prison library is there a prison library like what are the uh, ch- I don't know
2: if there is now but when I was there yes there was but shortly after I left they did close it because the librarian was retiring and they wanted to save that money and not hire someone else So I think that the library is there, but without a librarian to organize it and keep it orderly, I don't know how effective it is for people or how people can find books and things that they may need. It's not a complete library. It's a lot of donations. In fact, I would say 97% of it is donations of novels and nonfiction books that people have, and they just want to get rid of them, so they drop them off at the prison or ship them up there. In terms of, like, legal resources, scant. There were not not very many at all. I, I think they, by law... Connecticut Judicial Library had to send them certain books every year, but they weren't organized in a way or, you know, searchable or anything like that. So there was a library, but most people, I would say, um, if they just got their GED there in the prison, the only reason that they would consider going on to college is if they had such a stretch of time out ahead of them that they knew they had to fill it some way. It was some way to get out of one cell, right, and go to the school area, and it was, happened at night. The college classes are taught at night by professors at York. It's uh, professors from Wesleyan, usually. There's a certain freedom with it, but not the freedom that we would expect to come from education and that, you know, more opportunities and more better understanding of oneself and one's world. That's probably not the first way that people would be motivated to go on to college.
1: It's an escape, essentially. Yes. It's a time. Yes. So one of the things I'm mindful of is like, you know, this episode is about prison intellectualism, and I think it's really clear that there are just like so many barriers to that in terms of like access to education and education levels. So, you know, it's very easy for me to look at, you know, your writing and there are other sort of prison journalists, columnists, there's books, but that's the aberration. That's, that's speaking in my language. So I'm curious as to what prison intellectualism is could look like in a different language, if that makes sense. Like what are the kinds of conversations and debates and ideas that are had that are hard for me to even kind of recognize because like you've been saying, they don't have the writing skills or the literacy skills, but I'm sure there's, there's something there.
2: Yeah. Um, There is a hearty intellectualism in probably every prison and jail. It just doesn't sound like what we would expect it to out here. If I had to nail down what the typical topics would be, it would be more moralistic type topics, like who was right and who was wrong in a certain situation. If there was a standoff between a guard and an inmate, um, like, you know, analyzing the various aspects of who should have done what, who was in the right, who was in the wrong, and why, you'd probably be hard-pressed to walk through your correctional institution and not hear some discussion of the system writ large, the, you know, um, why we have courts and prisons and why we arrest certain people and don't arrest other people and the view of credibility, you know, credibility is a big problem in there because just by virtue of living in there in a certain type of uniform, you have none. And then by wearing a different type of uniform, you have all of it. It's unquestioned. So that kind of, dichotomy, that stark difference, teaches a lesson to anybody who enters there of what what reputation is and how people understand certain people who are assigned certain roles in society. So I think you would hear a lot about that. I th- also think there's a certain level of romantic behavior in there um, where people are considered, quote unquote, dating, right? Even though they can't necessarily even be next to each other or go anywhere, they develop relationships. Sometimes they're sexual, sometimes they're not. It's just a connection where people would – if they can manage to see the other woman in a library or in the dining hall or something like that, they want that connection. And I think there is also a hearty debate over what, um, what the limits of love are because there is a certain ethic in that population that the only way to show true love is to do absolutely everything that the person asks. There are no limits. It's called ride or die. People would describe themselves as I'm ride or die, meaning like, you know, I will go along with whatever this person wants, regardless of its reasonableness, including death. Right. So almost like a cultish obsession with the one's partner. And I think that when things would break down or there would be um, things would happen, there would be a fight over a, a girlfriend or they used to call each other wives in there when those things would happen, there would be actually a deeper discussion. It did, Like, again, it didn't sound like something you would talk about in the modern love column in the New York Times, but a deeper understanding of the limits of affection, the liabilities of affection, and how love is supposed to enlighten us and make our lives better, but often can ruin it. I mean, if you've counted up the number of women who were in there because they did something with a boyfriend, for a boyfriend, for a husband... Those don't appear in any type of statistics, I know, because I've looked for them, but it's pretty high. I would say about 75% uh, had wow. a lover somehow implicated or involved in the crime. And, and not, it could be, even be that they were a victim, but there was some romantic relationship with someone caused them to get into trouble.
1: Does that experience translate into how they see romantic relationships on the inside?
2: I would say that they learn more probably inside than outside because there are fewer distractions and more time to think about what those lessons are and what they should be, and kind of a, a internal revolution to getting themselves to the point where they don't need that anymore. I know a lot of women used to talk about that. There's a certain um, degree of independence that people used to discuss and the ways to get there, but also an acknowledgement that they might not be able to do it.
1: One of the things that you mentioned is kind of that they do have a keen sense of the system and what it does and why it is the way that it is, I I mean the judicial system, the correctional system more broadly, what does a prisoner see and a prisoner understand that a scholar or journalist or, yeah, just researcher couldn't quite grasp?
2: I think they see the futility of effort, right? So like you would hear from lawyers or journalists who don't really know the system like I do, um, things like, well, you should try this or if, if you're in a, some type of a jam, you're t- in trouble or, or you're, something isn't working out in your your way, either an appeal or um, something in within terms of the disciplinary board, which is that's the, the internal punishment system. If you keep going and you're in the right and you are a quote unquote good person deep down, things will work out for you. And there's a an acute understanding, I would say, amongst the women, at least in your correctional, that that's not always true, right? That there are certain barriers and certain biases that the system has that they are not always going to get their fair share. And they know that. So r- rather than saying like, buck up, if we just try harder, if we file another thing or if you keep going or something like that, they'll say no, I'm not going to do that because they know it's not going to work out in the end, or at least they believe that. I think this also comes across to others, people outside the system, as laziness. And I think that's a problem because I once described it when working with people in the kitchen, the other women, I said they don't know how to work hard. And that I realized immediately that that sounded like I was saying that they were lazy, and they weren't. But no one had ever really explained to them that the more you do and the harder you work, the greater the chances are that you could have some type of success. And to kind of train them and explain to them why it's worth it to go the extra mile, um, especially when you have nothing else to do, right? (laughs) If you're gonna stay a little bit 15 minutes later at work, the only other option was for you to go back to a cell. And I think that's where capitalism actually really (laughs) affects the way that they think because they've never really seen in the times that they did really try a kind of return on their effort. They don't see that return mm-hmm. on investment the way that other people do, and that's because of the enduring inequities of I think our our economic system and also racism, the way that that plays into it. So that's they were um I would say much more street smart about their chances at things and that controlled their actions and then when they didn't act that would be interpreted incorrectly as a lack of interest, a lack of ambition or a lack of work ethic.
1: It sounds like that they have good cause to feel that way. Like, like what can they actually accomplish? Like, like, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think that the, I don't know if the word is hopelessness, but the resignation of the prisoners is right (laughs) versus the kind of uh, process like, oh, we can just put in that, that appeal, et cetera, et cetera, that the journalist or the lawyer or the academic might have.
2: Well, it's all they know, right? So it's not irrational in any sense, right? So if they've always been let down and if teachers didn't even invest enough in making sure that they could read before they passed them on to the next grade and they actually even graduated from high school not being able to read, it's completely rational. And that's something that I think if you're going to rehabilitate someone, that's what you have to do is break that and say, look, you're right, these systems are totally wrong, but if we keep going, we might be able to actually break the system, not just break you through it. Right, that's the idea. And so like, if we keep drilling this hole, if we keep turning and turning and turning, we'll break through to the other side. And they don't think that that's even possible. But then they they have a more understanding of like, well, the wall that's there that I have to drill through that's really the problem in the first place. And because their education levels are a little bit lower and um, they haven't been encouraged to speak up, the way they articulate that is probably not the most effective way. So they're more af- aware of the the systemic problems. Um, they just don't now know how to point them out. I think we need to hear more from people who are experiencing those systemic problems and kind of draw it out of them. Because we're, the more insights we can pull out of them, because they're not probably not going to spill out, at least not outside of a, a prison tier, you know, which is a collection of cells where people can all do their recreation time uh, together, uh, meeting with dignitaries or the governor of the state or, you know, someone who's visiting the school, it's not going to spill out there. It may spill out in these hallways and these internal conversations inside cells, but it's not going to come when it's needed to kind of bridge that gap.
1: That was Chandra Bazelko columnist and author of Prison Diaries. That's a Webby award-winning series, which started while she was inside at the York Correctional Institution in Niantic, Connecticut. You can find her on Twitter at Chandra Bazelko. The link is in the show notes. Quote, The educated prisoner is a threat to the penal system whether that education is gained through participation in formal educational programs or through the decision to use prison time to read books, because knowledge is indeed power, and it therefore becomes something that must be denied to those one wishes to keep powerless. This is what Howard S. Davidson and John Mark Taylor wrote in the 13th volume of the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons. Howard is a professor who long taught in Canadian provincial jails. John was a Missouri state prisoner and prison education crusader. He died in his cell at the age of 54. Howard and John went on to say, quote, The logical strategy for prison administrators is to keep prisoners ignorant to prevent the acquisition of any high-minded ideas, lest we begin to question our subjugation and treatment. This is the extraordinary kind of thing you're going to read in this journal. And Justin Pichet is one of the editors. I called up Justin to ask him why we need to center the voices of prisoners in any conversations about criminal justice.
3: If we understand that imprisonment is about the deprivation of liberty and being an embodied experience, um, I think to fully appreciate what that means and to be able to convey it, I think you need to be a prisoner or to have experienced that at some point. And so what their writing allows us to do is get an entry into that experience and and its broader significance in terms of what's happening behind bars. And I would certainly say that over time, uh, JPP contributors, I think, have been able to articulate trends on the ground quicker Hmm. than they've appeared in the academic literature. So for instance, as different jurisdictions have claimed to try and put in place measures to reduce uh, segregation, or have even renamed them as, like, you know, uh, federally we have structural intervention units. And, you know, our contributors were writing about this with the onset of these rebranding experiments and kind of saying, like, hey, this is the same stuff I've been dealing with than what existed previously mm-hmm. when we called segregation, segregation, or solitary confinement. So it's that kind of stuff. I mean, uh, a lot of uh, different contributors, particularly in in the early 90s, were talking about how they were part of prison labor within institutions that was generating capital or generating profits for corporations. And of course, we see in the mid to late uh, 1990s, this discussion around the prison industrial complex. Well, they were talking about, um, I mean, they didn't call it that, but they were talking about that earlier on than, than we were um, in the academic literature. So I think the immediacy of it, the proximity of it allows them to basically communicate what's going on in a, a rich and nuanced way in ways that uh, we can't do as quickly as academics that are often you know, limited in terms of our access to the institutions uh, and then have their access sometimes blocked in some cases or in other cases mediated or slowed down um, through having to try and get approvals from institutions to allow external scrutiny, which they historically do not like, and try and shy away from.
1: One of the words I saw on the website was prison intellectual or prison intellectualism. I saw it in a couple places. Um, and that really piqued my interest because this is a show about intellectuals and intellectualism. So I'm wondering what exactly that means to you and to the journal? What, what is the intellectualism that you see inside prisons?
3: I think if we are to understand and effectively resist and build alternatives to imprisonment, we need to absolutely privilege the voice of criminalized and incarcerated people who have developed a vast knowledge of the ins and outs of the system And have keen insights into what we should be putting in place instead in our communities to prevent people from being criminalized and prevent people from harming themselves or others if they have been criminalized for those reasons. So they should be at the center of any understanding or any organizing around human caging. And so when the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons emerged in 1988 and published its first issue, it was actually coming from the International Conference on Penal Abolition in 1985 in Amsterdam, in the Netherlands. They had an entire conference about abolishing prisons and even extending the abolitionist gaze to look at the punitive injustice system as a whole. And there weren't current and former prisoners presenting papers or being heard in that space and so Bob Gosche, who was uh, a prof at the University of Ottawa and Department of Criminology at the time, and a number of other scholars that were uh, examining imprisonment um, and, and other aspects of the, the punitive injustice system, they said, we need to have current and former prisoners in these spaces articulating what's happening on the ground and also conveying what they would like to see the movement fight for in terms of alternatives and strategies to get there, like how we fight. And so, when ICOPA, the International Conference on Penal Abolition, was to take place in Montreal in 1987, they got together and they put together a call for papers to prisoners. And and that essentially uh, formed the basis for a slate of panels at the ICOPA in Montreal. And then those papers ended up being peer reviewed, and and some of them were published in Volume One, Number One of the Journal of Prisoners in 1988. And so it started from that moment onward, and has tried to be a vehicle through which prisoners can inform themselves and others about uh, what is happening in terms of different shifts and continuities in, in penal policy and practice. What They would like to see built instead and and how we get there.
1: I'm curious to learn more about your own involvement in the journal and I'm wondering if you can take me back to maybe the first prisoner that you worked with that you corresponded with and edited.
3: So uh, volume 17 number one was the first issue that I had edited that featured contributions on the value of education within prison settings and some of the barriers that prisoners encounter. What I remember was mailing this journal issue that I was putting together to John Mark Taylor, who was uh, a prisoner in the United States serving a life without parole sentence. And I'd sent him like a hundred and some odd pages all in one envelope. Little did I know, and I I, I probably should have known better, but you can't, at least where he was housed, you can't send in a package with 100 plus papers in it. The actual uh, allowable limit in his jurisdiction, which was Missouri, was 10 pages. Wow! And so so basically, all he got was my introduction uh, to the issue, and he didn't see anything else. But he is like John Mark Taylor. He completed a PhD from behind prison walls. He is you know, published pretty extensively on the role of education in prisons and its importance as like really the only positive thing that happens behind the walls. And he wrote this response, we have a response in every issue um, that basically comments on on the different contributions and trying to to bring a narrow focus in terms of what it all means uh, and why it matters. And he wrote in in his response that like this exchange that we had where literally, the vast majority of the content that I sent him was confiscated uh, is indicative of some of the barriers to knowledge production and even the acquisition of knowledge by prisoners within these settings. Like they can't have access yeah. to things unless they're directly sent from from publishers and published form, unless it's under 10 pages. So, what does that mean in terms of what they can access, you know, with their limited funds that are available to them if they have mm. any at all? What does it mean in terms of what they're able to put out? you know, in terms of contributing to knowledge on imprisonment when they don't have access to these resources that we take on the outside for granted. It's kind of through exchanges like this over time that you also learn about the sheer ridiculousness of imprisonment sometimes. Uh, I remember getting a note, you know, a few years ago from the state of California informing us that they wouldn't allow our journal into their prisons anymore because, you know, it, it promoted alternatives and, and resistance. And they labeled this as a, a terrorist threat. And so we had to send them a note saying, no, we're a peer-reviewed journal comprised of an editorial board of academics and were published by a university press. Like you're laying this in or you're facing legal action. And the journals were let in. Wow, We face that kind of stuff all the time.
1: Yeah. I read one of your, one of your articles that kind of outlaid, laid out some of the methodology of the journal and the challenges were really like harrowing the quotes from prisoners talking about you know their books being taken away or not having access to certain things getting transferred having notes disappear or being put into solitary and not having the ability to write can you tell me a little bit more but just kind of those logistical challenges like how does the prison get in the way of these prisoners from doing doing this kind of work
3: what other ways well I mean you you neatly summarize them but i think i mean if we're we're talking about like just trying to produce knowledge within the setting that's often chaotic as it's been described to us like a lot of noise a lot of interruptions facing repercussions from fellow prisoners or from from prison staff as well as you know their families like oh you're publishing stuff with your name why can't you just disappear mm-hmm. you know like um wow. that kind of stuff um so you know pretty gut-wrenching things for some people where they don't have the outside support there for, for what they're trying to do, which is connect to society somehow to feel like they're making a contribution to be able to speak truth to power and let people know what's up. You know, the work that prison writers and prisoner ethnographers do is important. It requires a lot of courage because it's not, it tends not to be something that is rewarded or seen in a good light by people within the system and society as a whole it's like you know why don't you just disappear you know and that's that's why we incarcerate people uh in part is to disappear them from view to not address the issues that their criminalization represents
1: has a prisoner that you've edited um faced repercussions just wondering what that must feel like personally I mean, obviously it's much more difficult for them, but to have someone that you've worked with then kind of get punished for the great work that they've done must be difficult as an editor.
3: Through our discussions with authors, it's clear they know the risks better than we do. They also often don't care, right? They're putting this out there. They've had everything taken away from them. They're living all these different kinds of deprivations and they're willing to pay the price, or at least many are. Of course, we're willing to publish works anonymously, and we do. But there are folks who have paid the ultimate price for their advocacy and for the contributions that they've made. Not, not necessarily specific to the JPP, but like just in general, like pushing back against a system that wants you to conform, that wants you to just do your time. John Mark Taylor, for instance, who you know had a medical condition that was ignored, you know he ended up dying a- alone in prison because state authorities let him die, and they let him die. Uh, we, you know, we can't you know, say this definitively, but I, I, I cannot see how the- how someone would. Face that treatment if they didn't do the kind of advocacy and writing that he did over the course of his life. We could talk about like what comes to mind when we think of repercussions being taken off into a corner without a camera and getting the shit kicked out of you. And surely that can and does happen. But you know, I think more profoundly than that, it's when folks decide to engage in these ways and to resist. That the violence that they experience often is not in those like very like intense short term ways, like right. short, short acts of, of violence. It's often this normalized, drawn out neglect that they face instead. And, you know, certainly a lot of our contributors are, are um, longer term prisoners. And, you know, I think that's part of what motivates them to contribute is that in some cases they're looking at a lot of time and they want to see a change.
1: Despite all of the constraints, the way in which the system gets in the way of this work and the, and the repercussions the prisoners face, you know, looking at the journal, they still do amazing work. What have you learned from them?
3: I would say as someone who studies, who teaches and organizes around prisons that this journal in particular and prison writing more generally served as an important reminder that there's still people suffering inside that you need to organize in solidarity with that are living in six by 10 cells, sometimes with two or three people that have little access to schooling or other forms of of programming that they could want to avail themselves of if they want to pass their time or make changes in their lives. It is a draconian space. And I think it's important for people to see that, that even in, say, a country like Canada, whose rates of incarceration have been relatively stable over time, say, in contrast to the United States, Everyone's saying that, oh, Canada is quote unquote soft on crime. Imprisonment everywhere, anywhere is not soft. It is always violent, even if we attach words like rehabilitation uh, or healing to these places. These are not hospitals. These are not schools. These are not drug treatment centers. These are not mental health care venues. These are fucking cages. And other things that we try to do, these positive things that we try to do within those settings, it's always institutional order and security and the infliction of pain that dominate and and sideline other objectives of punishment. So we need to center prisoners' accounts of that to inform our own understanding and our own resistance and our own paths forward to eventually end this practice, if not now, then within... A few generations so that we can actually have more effective and just, humane ways of relating to each other, which displacing people, disappearing them behind a razor wire fence and concrete walls cannot and will not ever accomplish. And that's whether it's in Norway, Germany, or Canada, or the United States, a cage is a cage.
1: That was Justin Pichet. He is Associate Professor of Criminology at the University of Ottawa and the editor of the Journal of Prisoners on Prisons. You can find that journal at jpp.org and you can find Justin on Twitter at Justin Pichet. As always, check the show notes. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. This week we were produced by Jay Coburn with research from Addie Susnick and David Mosscrop. Our composer is Mike Barber, Our graphic designer is Dakota Coop, and our host is me, Gordon Kadic. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast. It's a new show, so we need your help cooking the algorithm. Hit subscribe, review, tell a friend, do what you can to help us get the show to more people. And if you really like what we do, you can also support us on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. You'll find bonus and early content there. Don't like what I said? Well, you can tweet at me. My handle is at Gordon Kadic, and you can email the show directly. The email is darts at gmail.com. We receive funding from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Our lead academic advisor is Professor Alan Sens at the University of British Columbia. Darts and Letters is made in two places, Toronto, Ontario, and Vancouver, British Columbia. Toronto is on the traditional land of the Mississaugas of the Credit the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples. Vancouver is on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. This is a production of Cited Media. We make other fine shows like Cited Podcast and Crackdown. You can find both of those wherever you find your podcasts.